Thank you for tuning into sermons from Liberty Baptist Church in Newport Beach, California. Our goal is to help you know God more and take the next step in your spiritual journey, no matter where you're at. If you have questions about God or about Liberty, you can connect with us at libertybaptistchurch.org. We pray that the Lord will use this message to be a help and encouragement in your life. Well, we do live in Southern California, and oftentimes when you go to visit somewhere else, you have probably noticed this, that people generally know when you live in California by some traits, by some traits. First of all, they know we live in California by our shock at how low gas prices are everywhere else. And they're griping. I was just in a place where they were complaining about paying $2.95 for a gallon of gas, $2.95 for a gallon of gas. They also can tell, tell us who are from California by how we identify our freeways. We often put an article, a definite article, before our freeways. You may have noticed this. We don't just call it five. We call it the five. We don't call it 91. We call it the 91. We don't call it I-10. We call it the I-10. We always put the definite article before our freeways. So I had a friend of mine who lives in, in uh, Lake Elsinore. He was driving down the 91. If you've ever been down the 91, and I don't know why they call it a freeway, because it's often a parking lot, isn't it? And so he's driving down the 91. On this particular day, traffic was flowing. What a strange thing on the 91. But traffic was flowing. Beautiful Southern California day. The windows in his car were rolled down. He was just enjoying the nice breeze blowing through the car. And there was something down the lanes that caught his attention. As he looked ahead of him, there was a plastic grocery bag. A t-shirt bag, they call them. A plastic white grocery bag floating among the lanes. Now, to us in California, that's shocking. That is somebody's 10 cents that has gotten away (laughs) and is floating among the lanes. But the bag was involved in its own choreographed ballet as this man watched it. My friend watched the bag as a car would go by and a swish of wind would catch that bag and blow it over to a lane. It would slowly float down. A car would go by it on the other side and push that bag and sweep it over to another lane. And my friend watched as that bag was swept over to his lane. It got caught on somebody's antenna. Isn't that cool to watch? And then it was set free. But it started to float over to my friend's lane. It started to float over to the driver's side of that lane. My friend watched as that bag came to eye level and it was coming to his side of the car. His arm was on the door, the window was open and in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye, he reached out and grabbed that bag and pulled it into the car. And he thought that was epic. He grabbed the bag. Nobody would believe him. He thought nobody would believe him. Did anybody else catch it or were they all too busy texting? Did, I mean, uh, paying attention to the road. Did anybody else catch it? Ah, there was somebody, a fellow on a motorcycle pulled right up even with my friend's car and the guy gave him a thumbs up. He had seen the epic moment. 
Now, you and I cannot create epic moments very well, but we can purpose to be prepared for them, to be on the lookout for them. And we can purpose that when an epic moment comes our way, we're going to grab it. And every time the word of God is opened, it is as though God is bringing truth, not just in our direction, but to our lane. And not just to our lane, but also to our side of the car. And not just to our side of the car, but also within reach. And it is incumbent upon us that as the word of God is opened and as truth is brought to our lives, that we reach out by faith, grab it, and bring it into our lives. That's the only way we're changed. So this morning, I want to bring to your attention a simple truth regarding salvation. Look with me over to John's Gospel, chapter 3. We will look at two other places briefly, but John's Gospel, chapter 3. John's Gospel, chapter 3. And when you go to John's Gospel, chapter 3, you know you are at a place that, that demonstrates that Jesus is divine. You see it over and over again on the pages of John's Gospel. John's Gospel, chapter 3, a familiar text, uh, which is kind of dangerous when you go to a familiar text because when, I, when I'm sitting listening to preaching and it goes to a familiar text, I sometimes check out thinking, I know the text. I already know what it says. I can sort of think of what I'm going to watch after church. I can think of what I'm going to eat after church while I'm watching the game. But today, let's let the Spirit of God speak to us as if we're the only one here. And if you've already applied these truths, then we take these truths and bring them into our lives that we might help others come to know the Savior. John chapter 3, verse 1, you're familiar with this. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The Holy Spirit, when he gave us the Bible, he never threw words in there just to fill up space. Everything has a reason for being there. There's a reason why the Spirit of God gives us the background and the profile of this man named Nicodemus. The Bible says that he's a Pharisee, a man of the Pharisees. Now, you remember the Pharisees had a respect for the Old Testament law. The Pharisees had such a respect for the Old Testament law that they watched what they ate. They would not eat that which God said not to eat. They, walked, they watched what they wore. When they went to their closet, they didn't say, what do I want to wear? It was, what does God's law allow me to wear? One day out of seven was the Sabbath day. The Pharisees observed the Sabbath with a great eye for detail. Why, old Nicodemus, as a Pharisee, he would never on the Sabbath day carry anything that weighed more than a dried fig, lest he was laboring on the Sabbath day and broke the Sabbath. If he was out of water, he could not even lower a bucket into a well, lest he be, lest he be accused of working on the Sabbath day. So Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He'd memorized great portions of Scripture. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Since he was a boy, he sought to obey the law. He's a Pharisee, a strict sect, the, the guardians of the Scriptures, so to speak. In fact, they were so concerned about, about not breaking God's laws that they even wrote down how to keep God's laws. And so they became very legalistic and oftentimes very judgmental and sometimes hypocritical. Because in the law, there were like 613 different laws, 1,613 different boxes to check. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, not a slouch. 
And because he was a Pharisee, as men go, he would be considered a righteous man. Though the Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. So we're not talking about a righteousness that's observed by God, but a righteousness observed on man's level. Old Nicodemus would have been considered to be a righteous man. And the Bible says that he is a ruler of the Jews, a ruler. In other words, he has been observed by his peers to walk the walk, not just talk the talk. So they elevated him to leadership. He's a part of the religious quality control there in Jerusalem. And his name, Nicodemus. I love names. I love the meanings of names. I love that. When we were naming our children, we wanted their names to have meaning. So we, we named them Bible names. Our first son, Timothy. First there was Timothy. His name means God-honoring. God-honoring. And then along came our daughter, Rachel. Rachel means little lamb. We had our second son. I wanted to name him Second Timothy. <laughs> After the book of the Bible, But my wife wouldn't let us do that, so his name is Thomas. Thomas, which means twin. The Bible doesn't tell us that, uh, uh, tell us anything about Thomas's twin in the Bible, but his name means twin. And tradition, tradition is fun. It's not inspired, but it's kind of fun and interesting. Tradition says that, that Thomas had a twin sister named Alyssa, which means truth. My Thomas married an Alyssa, and they have twins. What? Two sets of twins. I know, one five years old, one one year old. They're the cutest grandkids on the planet. You would, you would argue with me that point, no doubt. So we have Thomas, we have Timothy, God honoring, Rachel, little lamb, Thomas, it means twin. And then we had Rebecca, Rebecca, a great name, ensnarer. Isn't that good? One who sets traps. Yeah, and our desire was that she would, you know, ensnare, in a sense, ensnare souls for the Lord, you know, that kind of thing, be a good soul winner. And then our last born, Jonathan, and he's here this morning with his wife, Kelsey. Jonathan means gift of God. Isn't that cool? My wife's name is Terry. It's derived from Teresa. It means caring one. My name is Rob. It means to steal, to take what doesn't belong to you. (laughs) It's out of the book of Proverbs where it says, Rob, not the poor what it says. <laughs> it's from Robert. Robert means bright fame or brilliant fame. I always think of Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father, which is in heaven. But Nicodemus, what a great name. Nicodemus, if you break it down, it comes from the word Nike. We're familiar with that, right? That doesn't mean that Nicodemus had a little swoosh on his robe, but his name comes from the word Nike, which means conqueror, victor, overcomer. Demas is the word we get our word demographic from. His parents named him conqueror of the people. Isn't that noble? Conqueror of the people. But Nicodemus, he'd memorized all kinds of scripture. He tried to keep the law. But there's a gnawing inside of his heart he just cannot overcome. There is a doubt in his heart that must keep him awake at night. You read here in verse 2 of John chapter 3, the same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man could do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. These words are so important. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. Some say to keep his actions covert. As he goes to seek Jesus, he did not want others to see him seeking Jesus. 
Some say that he went by night, not just to keep his actions covert, but to also spend a time in protracted conversation with Jesus. At night, you don't have appointments. You don't have people clamoring for your attention. And Nicodemus had something on his heart. And notice the things he says to Jesus. These are marvelous. He calls him rabbi. That's a term of respect coming from Nicodemus, the Pharisee, to Jesus, a term of respect. And he says, we know. Did you catch that pronoun? We know that thou art a teacher come from God. We know. Has Nicodemus been talking to other Pharisees? Has Nicodemus been talking to other rulers of the Jews? Have they been talking about who this Jesus is? He's not like any other teacher. We know that thou art a man come from God. For no man can do the miracles that thou doest except God be with them. We know that thou art a teacher come from God. So Nicodemus calls him rabbi, great term, master, great term of respect. And he says, we know that you're a teacher that's come from God. You're not teaching your own things. You're not teaching under your own authority per se, but you have a ministry from God. And we know this because the miracles you do, they are God's stamp of approval all over your ministry. Those are nice things, but they fall short of the truth. Those are nice things. Nice things from a righteous man. And as Nicodemus says this, he's coming to Jesus as a friendly. He's not coming as a hostile. He's not coming to to trip him up. He's not coming to ensnare him, to trap him. He's coming as a friendly. And you notice how that Jesus does not even recognize what Nicodemus has said. And I wonder if the wonderful Lord Jesus Christ looked past Nicodemus' countenance, looked past his words and into his heart. And I wonder if Jesus didn't see that before him stands a man perplexed, a man filled with doubt, because Jesus answers a question that has not even been asked. We have a righteous man here with an unasked question. And what is that question? How can I see the kingdom of God? I've memorized scripture, I've jumped through the hoops, I have checked boxes, I've been recognized by my peers, but there's still this gnawing sense that I am not going to see the kingdom of God. And notice how Jesus responds to these nice things that Nicodemus says. Verse 3, Jesus answered and said unto him, verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus has a problem here, doesn't he? This is perplexing to him for this reason. Nicodemus, he knows knows the idea of being born again. When a Gentile would convert to Judaism, they would have an, they would call that the experience of being born again. Nicodemus knows this. But Nicodemus has these boxes checked already. He is born as an Israelite. He is born as a Hebrew. He is born in a particular tribe. He was born in the land. He loves the law. He's memorized the law. He does not need to be born a Jew again, and that's what his problem is. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And this is where Jesus differentiates spiritual birth from physical birth, right? Jesus says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. And then Jesus prophesies about his own crucifixion. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, and that takes us right into familiar territory, John chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. So we have a righteous man. He's got this question that gets him out of his house at night. He wanders the back roads of Jerusalem, the dusty back roads, looking for the place where Jesus is rumored to be. 
And he gets there. And he says to Jesus, Rabbi, I respect you. We know, many of us have talked, you are a teacher who's come from God. No man could do the miracles that thou doest except God be with him. You have God's stamp of approval all over your ministry. And Jesus looks past all that to the real reason that this righteous man got out of bed that night. Jesus answers Nicodemus' unasked question. Look at verse 15. It'll be familiar to you. Again, the Bible said on the, uh, just before this, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Verse 15, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. To the righteous man's question, to the righteous man's question, the question that's unasked, to the righteous man's unasked question, Jesus gives this answer, this answer. The righteous man has no assurance of seeing the kingdom of heaven. His own righteousness has not purchased him a ticket to heaven. And this gnawing sense drives him to be with Jesus. And so this righteous man with this unasked question has his question answered by Jesus. You want to see the kingdom of heaven? Well, Jesus is going to be lifted up on a cross. He's going to die for our sins. He's going to be crucified. He's going to be buried. He's going to rise again. And, and whoever believes in him will have everlasting life and shall not perish. Whoever believes in him. Nicodemus, the righteous man, his unasked question, here's the answer. Believe. Believe. Say that word with me. Believe. Let's say it again. Believe. To the unasked question, the answer is believe. You may have some people on your block who are righteous. You may have some people where you work or where you go to school who are righteous. And yet I wonder if in, the, in, those, in those moments before going to sleep, I wonder if there aren't times when eternity looms near and they think, I'm just not there. I'm just not good enough. And they're right, they can never be good enough to merit God's favor. Because God's not impressed with anything we do, but he is impressed with his son. And so to the unasked question, there is the answer, believe. Look with me over to the book of Acts very quickly, the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter eight, in Acts chapter eight, we have a, a righteous man who has an unasked question and Jesus says, believe. Here we have a religious man, a religious man with an unusual question, a religious man with an unusual question to set the scene. This is a man who comes from Ethiopia, and he's made the trip from Ethiopia to Jerusalem for one purpose, and that is to worship. That tells us this is a religious man. In addition to worshiping, he has somehow obtained a scripture scroll, and he's in his chariot, and he's reading the book of Isaiah. Now, you and I know that we're so thankful for the chapter divisions and verse divisions in our Bible. But of course, in the first century, those did not exist. And so you had to go to a place in the scroll, kind of being familiar with the scroll and the different things that are in that scroll, because there were not page numbers or verse divisions or, or chapter divisions. But the place where the Ethiopian is reading out of what we know of as Isaiah chapter 53. And Philip, one of the apostles, is told to go and join himself to this Ethiopian. And so Philip runs up to the chariot and he asks a great question. He says, understandest thou what thou readest? And the Ethiopian says, and this Ethiopian is not a slouch at all. He is an executive. He is the 
the treasurer for Queen Candace. And he's coming from Jerusalem having worshiped. He's a religious man. And so he says, how can I understand what I'm reading except some man should guide me? And so he invites Philip, this apostle, into the chariot. And here's where we pick up in, in Acts chapter chapter 8, in Acts chapter 8, and in particular, look with me down to verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. Don't you love that? You can find Jesus in the Old Testament over and over again. Verse 36, and as they went on their way, they came unto a certain water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? So we have the righteous man, Nicodemus, with an unasked question. The answer is believe. We have the Ethiopian here with an unusual question. They're riding along. Did he see somebody baptized in Jerusalem? Did he hear about people being baptized in Jerusalem? All all we know is he sees a body of water, and he asks this unusual question of Philip. What doth hinder me to be baptized? What's standing in the way of me being baptized? What obstacle must I overcome in order to be baptized? And Philip gives him the same answer that Jesus gave to the unasked question by the righteous man. Look what the Bible says in Acts chapter 8 and verse 37. And Philip said, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. Notice this great confession. He answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You have the righteous man's unasked question, the answer, belief. You have the the religious man, the guy who, who goes to worship, but still a man who's not converted. The guy who goes to worship, but a man who's still not right with God. He says, what's keeping me from being baptized? Let's just stop the whole entourage here. Let's go into the water and you should baptize me. And Philip recognizes that there's an order to things. There's always an order to things in the New Testament. And it's not based on how I feel about the order. It's not based on how I feel about myself. It's not based upon how I feel about God. There's an order that's an order that's just always the order. And the order is there's always belief before baptism, always belief before baptism. And so Philip knows that. He says, except thou believest, thou mayest. And what does he say? He says, I believe that. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And Philip said, well, we're going to wait a while, see if you mean business. Not at all. Philip didn't say, well, we're going to prove you. We're going to check your sincerity. Well, you need to go through 13 classes. Now, there's nothing wrong with classes. You understand that. Those are very helpful in, in helping us to grow. He said, I believe that Jesus is the Christ. And Philip didn't make him go through a confession of faith to see if he dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's properly. They'd stop the chariot. That was enough for Philip. I believe that Jesus is the Christ. All right, stop the chariot. And Philip and the eunuch went into the water and Philip baptized him. You have a righteous man with an unasked question. The answer is believe. You have a religious man with an unusual question. And the answer is believe. Can I tell you, you see this over and over again in scriptures. Look with me to Acts chapter 16. We're moving on to our last point. Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. And in Acts chapter 16, you have the establishment of the church in Philippi. And it starts with a businesswoman by the name of Lydia. It starts with a, a damsel who is set free from demonic 
possession. She was a soothsayer and she brought her employers great gain. And then she was set free by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which then meant she was no longer soothsaying, which meant then that her employers were losing out on the income. And boy, when you mess with, with, their, with their money, they are irate. And so they make these accusations against Paul and Silas. And Paul and Silas are beaten with rods. They are then turned over to a jailer who was told to keep them fast, make sure they don't get away, make sure they don't escape. So the jailer puts them in the innermost chamber and he puts their feet in stocks. That's Acts chapter 16. The two men, the two men who were preaching the gospel who set the damsel free of demonic possession. The two men who were preaching the gospel who saw Lydia come to a saving knowledge of Christ, those two men are Paul and Silas. And you're familiar with this. In the prison at midnight, it's dark, it's damp, there is a stench. It's a horrible place to be. And these men serve God, and look where their service got them, into this prison. And what are they doing? Are they complaining? Are they murmuring? No, you and I know what they're doing. They're singing. They're singing in the prison. Look at verse 25 of Acts chapter 16. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God. And the prisoners heard them. And the prisoners heard them. What are they doing? They're singing and praising God. You know, it's amazing to me how weird we are as human beings. When we're in difficulties, we say, oh, I just can't sing and praise God. I'm just under so much stress. I was in Glacier Bay a while back. Everybody talks about the glaciers, how majestic they are. I'm floating into Glacier Bay. I see the glaciers off on the horizon. They're not very spectacular. Kind of wimpy, if you ask me. And then we got closer. Okay, that's, that's kind of impressive. And then we got up real close. And they were majestic and impressive. Little, and I thought we were close. But there's little dots floating around in front of the face of the glacier. They're birds. They're birds. And there was this profound truth that came to my mind on the deck. Here it is. The closer we are to the glacier, the bigger it is. <laughs> it's like the guy at the baseball game. I was sitting there in the stands. I wondered, why is the ball getting bigger? And then it hit me. The closer we are to God, the bigger he is. But the farther away we are from him, the smaller he seems. Hey, Mission Church, I'm just so stressed, I just can't go to church. Hey, are you reading your Bible? I'm just so stressed, I just can't read my Bible. Are you praying? I'm just so stressed, I just can't pray. Aren't we weird? Our source of strength is God. And oftentimes it's demonstrated through God's people. And oftentimes it's proclaimed to our heart through God's word. The closer we are to God, the bigger he is. Paul and Silas sang when everybody else would have been complaining. Paul and Silas sang choruses while other prisoners were uttering curses. Paul, and here's why, because the reality in Paul and Silas's heart was bigger than the reality of the circumstances they were in. God was more real to them than the difficulty of being beaten and cast into this prison cell. And boy, in California, we have earthquakes. 
Sometimes they're rolling, aren't they? Sometimes they're rolling earthquakes. And if you're not used to it, it can be startling. It comes through, and then, and then it rolls through, and everything's in, intact, and you say, well, that wasn't so bad. It's kind of like a little ride. And then there are these jarring earthquakes. You can't hear them coming. I remember hearing a rolling earthquake come through once, and it did. It sounded like a freight train was coming through. But then there are those jolting, just jarring earthquakes. We've had some of those out in beautiful Yucca Valley where we live, those jolting earthquakes. Well, inside this prison, there's a jolting earthquake. And it's so sharp that the doors of the cells come off of their hinges and the mechanisms in the locks holding the stocks tight, the mechanisms are jarred loose. Cuffs fall off. Shackles fall off, fetters fall off, the doors are off their hinges. And it's sharp enough, it woke up the jailer. The jailer comes bounding in. And if he were a prisoner in his prison and that door was open, he'd escape. He figures all the prisoners have done the same. And so he grabs a dagger. He's about ready to take his own life. Rather than face the wrath of Rome, he was this close to entering into eternity on his own. And Paul and Silas, you know, they don't discuss it and say, hey, hey, shh, let him do what he's going to do. We don't have any control over that. You see how badly he treated us? You see how awful he treated us? But Paul loves people. And Paul loves the gospel. He loves the Savior. He knows this is a jailer for whom Jesus died. Paul calls out to him. Do thyself no harm. Well, that's startling. Out of the darkness, this, this voice. Do thyself no harm. He says, none of us have escaped. The jailer's incredulous. He asks for a torch. And he holds the torch up and he looks in the cells. And sure enough, the reflection of the torch is seen off the beady eyes of the prison. Because everybody knows in the first century, prisoners had beady eyes. And so the torch bounces off the reflection, and the jailer sees. He looks at the next cell, he sees, and he begins to tremble. I was so close to going into eternity, so close to going into eternity unprepared. And he comes before Paul and Silas, and this, this jailer, this wretch, we've heard about the righteous man's unasked question. We've heard about the religious man's unusual question. Here's a wretch of a man, a wretched man with an unfiltered question. He comes before Paul and Silas with great trembling, and he asks, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Is there any hope for me? What must I do to be saved? And you see this in our text here in, in Acts chapter 16, and looking here at verse 30. The Bible says, in fact, verse 39, then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? An unfiltered question and the unfiltered answer. Look what they said. Believe. Say that word with me. Believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. And as you read here in verse 34, and when he had brought them into his house, he set me before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. His household believed with him. So you have the wretched man with the unfiltered question. And Paul and Silas, they don't hem and haw. Well, you have to do this, and you know, you got to do that. And, and it seems like these days the gospel is so obscure. 
And I can understand some of the reason why people are tempted to do that. It's because we have seen people who have made professions of faith who just seem to leave these things of God and, and not turn back, and they seem to sin without conviction, and they seem to, uh, to go into sin without the chastening of God. And so we think we got to help God out a little bit and make the gospel harder. We don't have the authority to do that. We've looked at three passages. To the righteous man's unanswered question, Jesus says, believe. To the religious man's unusual question, Jesus, or, uh, Paul, uh, the, the Philip says, believe. And to the wretched man's unfiltered question, Paul and Silas say, believe. Charles Spurgeon preached about the cities of refuge. You're familiar with them. In the Old Testament, when the Israelites settled in the land of Canaan, on, on the east side of the river, there were to be three cities called cities of refuge. On the west side of the river, there were three, that's the Jordan River, there were three cities called the cities of refuge. And you know, in Bible days, in Bible days, there was this, this law, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That was necessary. Because you know how it is, it's the law of the jungle, or we might say the law of the playground. What is that? Hey, you know what it is. Out on the playground, some kid pushes you. What do you do? You push him back harder. He gets up. What does he do? He pushes you harder. What do you do? You push him so hard, he falls down. And he gets up, he tackles you and throws you to the ground. That's the law of the playground. I'm going to make you hurt like you hurt me, only more so. Make you pay. The law of Moses put a regulator on that, eye for an eye tooth for a tooth. And so if somebody was working on your farm and some accident happened and someone got killed, their family could come take your life. And so there were these cities of refuge. You could flee to the cities of refuge. You could plead your case to the elders. And if they deemed you innocent of the man's blood, you could live there unharmed, unsought after. Spurgeon made the comment that the cities of refuge had to be clearly marked. That the way had to be cleared of debris. That the gate had to be cleared of debris. Because when a man is under stress running for his life, he needs the way to be made plain and clear. All the clutter and all the junk and all the, all the debris removed so that he could find the entrance and arrive safely. And when a man senses that he's not right with God, and when a man senses that he is this close to eternity and not ready to meet God, and when a man senses the weight of his sin, the way needs to be made clear. The city of refuge is the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to quit obstructing the way. We need to make it clear, make it obvious, make it plain, so that as a man is in distress for his soul, he can find Jesus and find him readily. Amen. To the un. To, to the righteous man's unasked question, Jesus says, believe. To the religious man's unanswered question, Philip says, believe. Or, uh, uh, unusual question, Philip says, believe. And to the wretched man's unfiltered question, Paul and Silas say, believe. You know, in a room like this, and even, even online, even if this, this time together is listened to in an archive form, there is no doubt that in the listening realm that there are those three types of people. There's a religious person who, who has kind of grown up in church, but there's still not the sense that they know God or that they're right with him. And if you're that religious person today, we would tell you, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't believe about him. Believe on him. Believe in him. Place your faith in him. 
Perhaps you're a righteous person as righteous people go, as people go. Not righteous enough to merit heaven because heaven is not a paycheck to be earned. It's not a reward to be sought. It's a gift to be received, a gift from God. And perhaps you're that righteous person. Everybody sees you crossing the T's and dotting the I's, but there's that gnawing sense that you're not right with God. Today, today may the Spirit of God compel you. Believe, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make this day, October the 30th, 2022, the day of your salvation. You might say, hey, I'm not religious. I'm not righteous as people go. Man, I am a wretch. Does God care about me? Yes. He would say, sir, what must I do to be saved? And the answer would be the same, believe. You see this throughout the Bible. You know, I, I don't know why that is that we, we have such a hard time with that. Right. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Well, what he really meant was this. Except yeah. thou believest thou mayest. Well, what he really meant was this. You got to dismantle every passage that uses the word believe. Why don't we just take God at his word? Amen. Believe. Is there repentance involved in that? Absolutely, there's repentance. But there's belief. That's what the Bible says, belief. This is, how, this is how Abraham, this is how Abraham was made right with God. Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. What about the thief on the cross? You may be familiar with this, this reading, it's trending and, and all, but let me just share it with you. How does a thief on the cross fit in with your theology? The thief on the cross, familiar with the scene. Jesus hung on a cross between two thieves also on crosses. One thief, very self-centered, very self-absorbed, was not interested in the kingdom of heaven, only interested in escaping the agony which he rightfully deserved. The thief on the other side of Jesus knew that he was there because of his own actions. But he also recognized that Jesus was innocent. And he said to Jesus, remember me when thou enterest into thy kingdom. There's a lot in there to unpack. He was recognizing that Jesus is the Christ. He was recognizing that after this death that he was experiencing, there was a kingdom. He was recognizing that Jesus is the king. He was believing on Christ. So the question, how does the thief on the cross fit into your theology? No baptism, no communion, no confirmation, no speaking in tongues, no mission trip, no volunteerism, and no church clothes. He could not even bend his knees to pray. He didn't say the sinner's prayer. And among other things, he was a thief. Jesus didn't take away his pain, heal his body, or smite the scoffers. Yet it was a thief who walked into heaven the same hour as Jesus simply by believing. He had done nothing more to offer. He had nothing more to offer than his belief that Jesus was who he said he was. No spin from brilliant theologians, no ego, no arrogance, no shiny lights, skinny jeans, or crafty words, no haze machine donuts or coffee in the entrance, just a naked dying man on a cross 
unable even to fold his hands to pray. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you so much for Liberty Baptist Church and the gospel she has preached through the years. I thank you so much, Lord, for Pastor Ryan. Thank you so much uh, for how you're using his ministry. And thank you for his love for you, his love for the word of God, a love for the people of God, and his love for the lost. And I appreciate so much, too, just uh, over and over again, seeing the various philosophies of the ministry that are just always drawing people to Christ, directing people to Christ, showing people Jesus. So this morning, as we've had families together, we have sought to once again exalt Christ, magnify Christ, and to somehow clearly proclaim the gospel. I thank you for the word of God. I thank you for the dear Holy Spirit of God. And I, I thank you, Lord, that our hearts, even though we've been saved, our hearts can be stirred by the, by the gospel. And we can be reminded, our neighbors, what is it they need? They need to believe on Christ. What is it my coworkers need? They need to believe on Christ. What is it that my teammates need? They need to believe on Christ. What is it that the, that the clerk needs at the grocery store? They, he needs to believe on Christ. This is the great need. Whether one's religious, righteous, or a wretch, this is the need. Our heads are bowed and eyes are closed, still in an attitude of prayer. I prayed about what to preach this morning, and God would not let me get away from this. And maybe you are the reason why. Have you believed on Christ? Have you believed on him as your savior? I didn't ask if you were baptized, if you were a church member, if you've been around for a while. I mean, have you believed on Christ? Is there a time and a place where you put your faith and trust in Jesus, his death, his burial, his resurrection, where you called on Jesus to be your savior? Because if you've not yet done that, today could be the day. Would you call on Christ to be your savior? There are folks, as mentioned at the beginning of the service, who'd be delighted to have a word of prayer with you that you might do that. If you've trusted Christ as your Savior and you know how to pray, you know how to get the ear of God, would you pray for those under the sound of our voice and under the shadow of this ministry who need Christ as their Savior, that their hearts would be opened? If you're without the Lord as your Savior today, I'd be remiss if we didn't give you an opportunity to trust Jesus. At the beginning of the service, there was mention made of, of an invitation to you to do just that. In a moment, we'll stand. We'll have our heads bowed and our eyes closed. There'll be people who'd be delighted to pray with you to receive Christ. I remember a service just like this when my mother stepped out. And somebody opened a Bible and so showed her how she could know Jesus as her Savior. And she has not been the same woman since. I remember in children's church a service just like this where I stepped out, accepted the invitation, and went and prayed to receive Christ as my Savior. It was a police officer from Santa Ana that taught junior boys, and he sat us down and prayed with us to receive Christ. He said, if you, he said, you could pray to receive Jesus right now. And I was 10 years old. I thought, I don't know how to pray. He said, and if you like, I can show you how to pray. I'll lead you in prayer. And I said, I am on board. And there are folks right here at Liberty 
who'd be delighted to pray with you. Do you need Christ as your Savior? Then you determine in your heart that you're not going to leave this place until you've settled that. You determine in your heart, I am going to be saved today. I'm not leaving without that. I am going to be saved today. And when the invitation is extended, may you just quietly make your way to an aisle. You'll be able to find somebody readily who'll pray with you. Do not let the opportunity get away from you. The truth has come down your aisle, your row, past the place where you're sitting. It's now time for you to reach out and grab it and pull it into your life. Thank you for listening to Messages from Liberty. Tune in next week for more Bible teaching or subscribe on iTunes to stay up to date with our current series.